Well, I do thank you for your patience in working through this material with me. Uh, I think we've, it's something we've been doing together. There's a lot to take on, and I'm conscious I'm still thinking some of these things through in my own mind. I couldn't sleep too well last night, so in the middle of the night I put on a podcast of my last sermon on this, and I was off to sleep within minutes. <laughs> so... Uh, So uh, I'm not going to go over absolutely everything that was said before, but uh, we looked at divorce in the law of Moses, and we saw that before the fall is the original pattern. One man, one woman, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it seems to me that there's lots of implications of that, but they're not spelled out fully until we come to the Lord Jesus. And certainly in the law, the legislation of the Old Testament, uh, as we've seen, it, it falls short of fully expressing what that original pattern was. We looked at the Old Covenant, in other words, the law of Moses, and we saw that the legislation there is adapted to a mixed group of people that in New Testament terms we would say are born again and not born again. And Jesus refers back and says it was for people with hard hearts. Legislation designed for conditions of unregenerate sinners, uh, which is really like our type of society. So if we were looking, if the purpose of our studies was to say what would be, let's suppose we were all members of parliament, we're all lawyers, and we were saying, what would be a good sort of legislation for the sort of society that we have? What would be fair and helpful and tend to the general good of society? I think we'd be looking at the old covenant and saying, well, how did God tackle that particular issue when he was making legislation for uh, a an unregenerate group of people or largely unregenerate group of people so please be clear that uh, there's a distinction between what Jesus would say if you're a Christian this is how you should behave that's one thing and if you are trying to make rules that would work helpfully in society that would be a different thing and the rules for society would be more like uh, what God said in the, in, the, in the law there. That's what I think about that. In the Old Testament, divorce is considered abnormal. Something has always gone wrong when there's divorce. And in that sense, it's a bit like uh, being a widow, death. That's something that's gone wrong. In the Old Testament, divorce is sometimes justifiable and at other times it's blameworthy culpable means that you could say to somebody you know you were wrong to do that that was wrong and at other times divorce is culpable and sinful but it is true that under the old testament it was possible to be divorced and to remarry and it was not counted uh, in in itself as sin i mean you you might have lost your temper in the way and that was a sin and all sorts of things like that but the, the, the provision was made that people could divorce and remarry under the law of Moses so that was, that was that and we looked at divorce in the teaching of Jesus and I was trying to point out and I think I will continue to try to point out that in the teaching of Jesus Jesus is, t is, is saying I'm speaking about Christians. I'm, I'm speaking about a group of people who in the nature of it don't have hard hearts because they've all got new hearts. That's what happens in the new covenant. I take away the stony heart and give you a, a warm, responsive heart. And therefore, I'm expecting uh, higher things from you. We've moved from the law of Moses situation to the kingdom situation. So in the law, we were talking about 
divorce being permitted, not commanded. It was because of hardness of heart to lessen the effects of human sinfulness, perhaps giving protection and liberty to a woman uh, and, and, and things like that. But Jesus returns to and clarifies the original pattern before the fall. And of course, that's what redemption does. Redemption takes the things that have been spoilt and says, now through the gospel, these things are being recreated and regenerated. So the image of God that was there in Adam and then was spoilt is being recreated in the Christian and relationships that were there in the beginning and then got spoiled are being recreated amongst Christians. And this is certainly the case in, in the terms of marriage. There is a main thrust to Jesus' teaching, and it's indisputably the main thrust, that marriage is, that marriage is meant to be for life. It's in this divorce is not allowable, and should Christians divorce and remarry, that brings them into the sin of adultery. And that's the main thrust. So I think I've got this in my notes somewhere else, but for young people who are setting out on marriage, they are not to think, oh, well, this is a sort of experiment, and if it doesn't go well, I can always jack it in, and uh, you know the Lord will understand, and uh, I can find somebody else. For a Christian... Uh, that is not an acceptable attitude. <coughs> Christian person goes into marriage saying, uh, before God, I intend with every ounce of my being to make this work. And even if it's really difficult, because actually people are difficult, uh, particularly when you're with them 24-7. Not that I'd know anything about that, of course. But um, there are difficulties in being close to other people. And the, for the Christian, this is a commitment to working that through and saying, I will work it through. If, if our marriage needs working out, we will work at it. So that's the main thrust of Jesus' teaching. And he makes one exception, which he repeats pretty much the same way twice. So his main thrust is... You don't divorce. If you were to divorce and remarry, that would be adultery. And he says, except for the case of pornea, which, roughly speaking, would, you would say is unfaithfulness. So I put it there with all the Greek. I just cut and pasted it from my computer. But I say to you that whoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication or pornea causes her to commit adultery and whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So I, I think he has got a main thought there and he is saying with one exception, that exception of pornea, um, unfaithfulness. And we have the same thing in uh, Matthew 19. So that was Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 19. Shall we look at this? Because it's not very clear from the screen, is it? So Matthew 19, verse 6. It'll be helpful to have it in front of us. So this is in response to a question from the Pharisees and Jesus says, haven't you read at the beginning the creator made them male and female and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. And that's, uh, that's where he, he goes and I've got the translation of that. What God has joined together, what God has paired let man not put asunder. And the word for putting asunder is korizo, to separate. And we shall see several examples of korizo being used. It's not, exactly, it's not exactly in the same tense and mood, but it is 
the same word. I'm sorry, I'll get myself in a bit of a pickle there. Uh, I don't think Jesus is saying it is impossible to unjoin. I think he's saying don't do it. What God has joined together, don't take apart. I nearly thought of an example of this. Perhaps you could think of an example. If there was, suppose you had some kids around in the house and you had spent a long time laying the table neatly and, and they came and took all the knives and forks and started playing drums with them, you would say, I've put that all straight. I set that all up. Don't take it all to pieces. And I think that what's being said here is of that form. Now, why did I put that? Uh, I think I was pointing out that there are two words used there. There's this corizo word, to put asunder, and he goes on to say, whoever marries her who is put away commits adultery, and that is the word, NIV translates it, divorce. So I, I think I was trying to remind us that we don't have a specific word divorce in the New Testament like we do in English. It's a technical and legal word. We have words, there are two words for sending away and one word for breaking. So the Carizo word says to break. And the Apollio word at the bottom there is to send away. And the Apollio word is here. It's word number 630 her who is put away and where else is it whoever shall put away his wife that's the opolio word so I just repeat that the one flesh that Jesus is talking about it certainly relates to sexual union but it must mean more than that it's not meant to be broken apart from by death that there is a command not to break it it's not saying that you can't do it it's just saying you shouldn't do it that's my reading of of that that we looked at in the past so now we're going to that was really revision so now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8 and there were two questions that came up last time and you asked uh, Catherine asked if on that interpretation of Matthew if there was adultery if there was unfaithfulness and two believers parted um, this is the hypothetical situation would it be within what Jesus said for them to remarry I think you asked that question and, and, and you, I think it was asked in terms of the innocent party and as far as I can get to grips with what's being said there, if that's the correct interpretation, which I think it is, I, I think both of them could remarry. I don't think it actually says anything about... I think what it says is that the relationship has been broken. And my understanding of that is that they are then free to remarry both of them. So I didn't answer the question at the time because I hadn't thought about it, but insofar as I thought about it, that would be the answer. And Lorna, who was sitting over there, commented about uh, an abusive relationship. And I didn't answer that because I didn't have the right head-on to answer that. And I think what I would say is that the situation between people who are who are genuinely Christians is one thing and if there was violence and abuse going on it would bring in a whole lot of other issues like church discipline and whether you could really call that person a believer so that would be one answer to the question and the other answer to the question is, was all that we've been looking at is to do well what we're looking at in the teaching of Jesus is in the kingdom it's for believers so the question of what you would do in wider society if people enter relationships which are abusive is, is really another question. It would be like going back to the old covenant and saying, you know, what would be given the prevalence, given the sort of attitudes that we have, how could you protect people, what sort of provisions should you make, and, 
and, and things like that. So that was an answer to Lorna's question, which I couldn't give last time. Right, I think you need to use the microphone. But don't, don't floor me too much because I'll be... Well, maybe you could answer it next yeah, no, time. Yeah, I can always say I don't know. Yeah. It's about the Matthew thing. Why, why does it, You said it, it used the word for pornea, meaning sort of general sexual immorality. Yeah. Why do you think he didn't specifically use the word adultery? Because surely sexual immorality within marriage is adultery. Well, I can say I don't know the answer to that question. I think there, it's a different range of meanings. So it could mean, pornea could mean uh, other illicit forms of sex, like having sex with animals or having sex with uh, people who are um, like incest. So it, it isn't just adultery. It's a, a wider range of meaning. And I haven't read the chapter which might have educated me further on that. So I'm going to say I don't know. Yeah, could we have the mic over there? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily record for people who'd like to be put to sleep. Um, if you just said that you come to the conclusion that people could then remarry, yeah. how could anyone marry the person that was the adulterer or the adulteress? Because then they would be committing adultery, wouldn't they, if they married somebody that had been that they'd divorced and then remarried they'd be committing adultery so they uh, so you've got really two remarry. two believers yeah and let's say the bloke is such an, in such a low spiritual condition and in such a pickle that he goes off and sleeps with another woman mm. and then subsequently uh, the wife divorces him says mm. i'm not you know you've broken that covenant and I'm going to take that as divorce. And the man is now uh, no longer married to that woman. So you're saying, what would be the situation about him marrying this Another. other woman? Mm. Or indeed of him marrying a third woman who might be a believer who comes on the scene later. Okay, well, it's the right pickle, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing particularly good about that situation in any shape or form. Uh, I think the principle would be, let, let's, let's take the, 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 the way I, I spelt it out. So there's believers, they've got real problems in their marriage and they can't sort them out. And let's say the bloke gets in a spiritual dive, goes off and does all sorts of things he shouldn't do, including having sex with somebody who's not his wife. She divorces him. He then begins to come back to the Lord he realizes that he's done wrong, finds a Christian woman, another Christian woman, and, and they get married. And that's a completely new... That's what I would say. And the reason I spelled it out is because one of my friends did exactly that. Okay. And uh, much as it's a, a, an appalling, terrible, sad situation, in my own heart, I wouldn't say he shouldn't have remarried. That's, that's what I'm saying. Right, I'm conscious that it's getting a little bit dim in here. Would anybody like any lights on? Or are you... Yeah. Uh, what did I say? And it's probably seven. Yeah, seven is right what I meant. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, let's... So, this is the, this is the new study. So let me do something about the context. It's very messy. And one of the things about these situations is that as a church begins to get more involved and generally the gospel begins to bite in a society that needs the gospel, these situations are going to crop up more and more. And it was a messy pagan society. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says... Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. So you've got a church made up of people who, some of them used to be sexually immoral, they used to be idolaters, they used to be adulterers, they used to be male prostitutes, they used to be homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. So that was 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, and that just says what a messed up uh, situation they were. But the gospel is equal to that. Now, I didn't read the, well, I have read the, the, the chapter on Roman marriage and divorce, but I'm afraid I didn't really grasp it. All, all I can say is that the context that they were working in, if we think our marriage laws are off beam, that's nothing compared with what Roman marriage laws are like. I was totally confused by them. It seemed to me as if the marriage laws were very, very flimsy. And, and my understanding, there was the, the state wasn't that interested or didn't have that much grasp of marriage. You know, you couldn't go to a registry office because they didn't, they didn't do things like that. So marriage laws are very flimsy and divorces were very easy. And, it, and in Roman society, uh, men could get rid of their wives and wives... Uh, sometimes did the same thing to their to their to their men, and it was to do with inheritance laws anyway. So Paul has a real task in dealing with people who've come from that situation. I think also in terms of context, he has the issue that people had an anti-material philosophy. In other words, matter stuff like this as he tapping various pieces of inanimate material there was a philosophy which said well what you do with that doesn't matter it's irrelevant so people like that would have said well sex is what you do with, with matter with your body, it doesn't matter really uh, where all the different parts of your body happen to be it's completely irrelevant spiritually and then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16 don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. And he's saying, it does matter, you know, your body does matter. And so some of the people thought, well, he's, it, it doesn't because we're spiritual. And there's another thing that I think was going on of a, a, a sort of the opposite error, that people were saying, well, if you're a spiritual person, then you don't use your... Any, sexual activity, for example, is, is unspiritual. So it's like being, becoming a monk or the same error prevails in Roman Catholicism to do with the priests, doesn't it? That they're not allowed to marry because it's presumably more spiritual not to do that. And this is what Paul is touching on in chapter 7, verse 1. For the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well... Yes and no is what he's going to say. Is a clearer example of it in 1 Timothy 4.3 where he quotes somebody who says, 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, these false teachers forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything God created is good. So this is part of the context, I think, that some of the, some of the people are saying, we're married, but to be spiritual, we're going to um, not have sex together and um, because it, 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 it pollutes us to do so. And I think also there is something going on again a sort of super spiritual philosophy which says now I'm a Christian everything changes normal life is gone so if you had it nowadays you'd find somebody who was at university becomes a Christian and they'd say I'm going to leave university and leave my studies because everything's changed and here I think there are people who are saying you know we're married 
But now we've become Christians, we're going to separate because that's a spiritual thing to do. And there's quite a bit about remaining and not suddenly jumping out of the situation that you're in. So chapter 7, verse 8 says, To the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, to remain unmarried. Verse 11, uh, this person must remain unmarried. Verse 11, verse 20, verse 20, each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. And verse 24, brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. So that seems to be going on as well. Also in terms of context, there are many Corinthian issues where Paul is trying to say something quite subtle, to say yes, but, or to say there are many general principles but I'm not going to give you a dogmatic rule for everybody and he says that for example in 7 verse 7 he says I wish all men were as I am so I'd recommend the the single state but each man has his own gift from God one person the right thing is this another person the right thing is that so he's trying to say these quite subtle things and the other thing I wanted to mention about the text was it quite often you might have noticed this it says Men da 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 da, woman da 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 da, or da 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 man, da 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 woman, and it just repeats the same thing, which we'll see a little bit of. So let's look at verses eight and nine. He is here addressing believers, and he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So notice this is not a word from the Lord himself. Jesus didn't teach on this particular subject as such. But this is to the, I've written it out again, therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good if they abide or remain as I Um, so here's a situation where change is not necessarily called for but if they cannot contain let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn so this is verses 8 and 9 the control word which uh, authorised version says contain it's to have the inner power to manage in the unmarried state some people for some people that's not particularly a problem some people it's what God has called them to for other people God hasn't called them to that this word unmarried is interesting it's agamos gamos is married and a puts at the front of it negates it so not married and I wonder what sort of people he's referring to this is me wondering unmarried does it mean people who have never been married Or does he mean people who have suffered under the Roman divorce situation and are demarried? They've had their married status removed from them by process of divorce. And I think there's a a considerable possibility that he's referring to people who who are demarried. He puts alongside widows, doesn't he? And uh, these are people who... Uh, as he as he says, might well be very uncomfortable being uh, continuing to be single, hence the idea of burning with frustration. But anyway, I don't think we can say conclusively anything on that, but uh, it's noticed, we notice the word agamos, unmarried or demarried. Let's look at verses, verse 10. Now, to the married, I give this command. So now he's speaking to believers who are married to each other. And I presume, um, I don't think this is necessarily always the case, but who were married as believers. He's talking about kingdom situation. He's He's quoting what the Lord Jesus says, and that was a kingdom situation. People are Christians. 
So he says, verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. It's an interesting case. He's not saying you didn't have to believe the bit I said before. He's saying I said that with my authority as an apostle. But what I'm about to say, there are actually quotable words from Jesus and that's what I'm going on here. So it is the Lord who says this. It's a word from the Lord. And what the word is, is this. A wife must not depart from her husband. A wife must not depart from her husband. That's word 5563, which is the word corizo, uh, to separate asunder. Let the wife, uh, so let's read it again. (coughs) A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. So a couple of interesting features. It's, this time it's woman, da-da-da-da-da, man, da-da-da-da-da. The woman bit uses the Carrizo word, and the man bit uses uh, a sending away word. That little word there, afiemi. And uh, he says that if she depart, let her remain unmarried, agamos, which presumably in this case means demarried, And what, what, so what do we say about this, uh, this situation here? So it's a very interesting text, isn't it? So it's two believers. We have a word from the Lord on this. The straightforward teaching is the same, obviously the same as Jesus, that there is not to be a divorce. Uh, you, you stick together. And Jesus made an exception in the case of Pornia, didn't he? Now, what I've said is, in the case of Pornia, it is possible to divorce and remarry. And this text says, uh, makes a, a situation where there is to be something followed by not marrying. So the question is how you harmonize what Paul is saying and what Jesus said. And there are two schools of thought on this, and I'll show you both of them. And if only I hadn't read about this other school of thought during the week, I would be really confident because I had one idea in mind. Well, this uh, number A, A, letter A, is the view that would be held by Andrew Corns, who is the... Vicar of Crowborough, who's the chairman of the Sussex Gospel Partnership and has written a well-known book on this. And he would take the view that, uh, of, that divorce is possible but no remarriage. And that's not the view that I've taken because I've taken the view that if there's divorce, remarriage is possible. But he takes a different view. The Lord said there's no divorce except for pornea. And Andrew Corns would say what Jesus meant was he wasn't giving an exception to the whole thing about divorce and remarriage he was only giving an exception for divorce so on the Andrew Corns view what Jesus had said was you can divorce but you can't remarry because you're still married to the person you know in God's eyes you're still married so what does that uh, what does that mean that Paul was saying? Well, Paul must have then, according to Andrew Corns, have been referring to the situation if there had been pornea. And Paul is saying uh, you shouldn't divorce, but if if there's pornea, that's what we're talking about under this view, then there can be uh, divorce, but you should not remarry. The only alternative being to be reconciled to your partner. So uh, it's not 
clear-cut that Andrew Corns is right. And here's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think Jesus taught that in that extreme case of pornea there could be divorce and there could be remarriage because he made an exception to his general teaching it's one thing and if Andrew Corns was right that the person couldn't remarry because they're still married in the eyes of God why does Paul say they should remain verse 11 unmarried Agamos, because he, she, surely he should, if Paul was going to say she, she, he, she should remain married because in the eyes of God she's still married. That's a question. And my third query is that surely this introduces a new state to Jesus' teaching. So we don't just have married and divorced. We now have married, divorced and able to remarry, and divorced and not able to be remarried, which is different to any sort of divorce we've ever had so far. So that's the Andrew Corns view. I'm sorry to be confusing about this, but it just is a vexed question. Here's the Stephen Clark view, which was the one that I was working from before, which says, if you're divorced, the old relationship, sadly, regrettably, maybe even you know, with all sorts of heartaches, is gone, and you are now free to remarry. So working through the same text again, the Lord had said, no divorce except for pornea, where remarriage is allowable. So Paul is now talking about not the pornea situation, but a different situation, where a couple can't get on they can't manage to live together they annoy each other so much they can't seem to work it out and he says in that state so, what it, so reading it is verse, verse um, 11 uh, so if the wife must separate from her husband she must, what we would call separation, I suppose, and she can divorce and separate asunder, but remain unmarried and not remarry, or else reconciliation to her husband. So it's 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 a, it's a difficult one. Um, I think what he's saying is that if believers can't live together and can't be reconciled, let them live as de being demarried, but be celibate single people. I have to, uh, it's a vexed question. I have to say that it doesn't very often crop up. So um, let's not lose all our sleep over this because it's a, it's a, it's a rare occurrence. So I'm gonna move on from that and I'm going to go to verses 10 to 14. And this is a different situation again. So to the rest, verse, do I mean verse 10? Yeah, uh, no, verse 12. Sorry, verse 12. To the rest I say, I say this, I not the Lord. So he's now addressing a situation that Jesus didn't explicitly touch on. And it's not surprising because Jesus was speaking over there in Israel, in the Jewish society, and Paul's over here in Corinth with all sorts of things that cropping up that never would have occurred uh, in the time of Jesus. So he's speaking to the rest. And this situation, or these situations, are for a mixed marriage. So maybe, I'm just thinking out loud now, so maybe a pagan couple, one gets converted. Or maybe it was a Christian couple and one falls away. But you end up with a believer married to an unbeliever. And this is what he says. If a brother has a wife who is unbelieving and she's pleased to dwell with him, let him not send her away. 
That's the brother. Same thing now with a woman. And if the woman has a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to live with her, let her not send him away. I think it's send him away in both cases. What does it say in the NIV? Divorce, divorce in both cases. And there's a little bit of reasoning because these people might be thinking, now I've become a Christian, this is making me unclean. Uh, going, in, be, being in the same bed and in the same house with this person who's, who's not a believer. And Paul says, no, please don't think that because you're not contaminating yourself by being married to this person. And that's why he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. He's not saying that they've been saved. He's not saying that they've been made born again by just being married to somebody. He's, what he's saying is they don't contaminate you. In that sense, they're holy. And your children who are uh, unbelievers, we presume, um, having a whole, keeping your children doesn't contaminate you because they too, in that same sense, are holy. So the unbelieving partner doesn't contaminate the believer. I mean, if you went and slept with a prostitute, that would be a contaminating thing, but being married to somebody who's an unbeliever isn't a contaminating thing in the same way. But he says, if the... Let's see what it says here. But if... If the unbeliever departs, let him do so. So the word there is kerizo. So if the unbeliever says... I'm totally fed up with you going off to your prayer meetings and uh, uh, wanting to read your Bible. I'm not having a Bible in the same house that I'm in and I'm not spending any more time with somebody who, who won't stay, with me, stay in with me each evening, wants to go to a prayer meeting. You know, that's it, I'm off. And what Paul is saying is, if that's the case, if the unbeliever won't amicably live with you and they corizo they separate asunder don't feel that it's your job to at all costs keep them if that's really what they want to do let them do it and he says a brother or a sister is not bound is that what he says? A brother is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to peace. And the interpreters different, differ on this, but I think what he's saying is that there is a, a, a binding together in a, in a marriage, but if the, if the unbeliever, it's not the, it isn't the believer that's the driving force of this, but the unbeliever says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, really not having you like this, and they depart and they could perhaps depart without actually moving an inch but in their the way that they relate to the believer there's no marriage there uh, and the unbeliever has departed and he's saying the brother or sister is not bound in such cases the, the, the believer is not necessarily to feel that they must stay and try and make it work at all costs when the other person's decided they're not going to make it work under any circumstances at all. Uh, but God has called us to peace. And I think what he's saying is that the, God hasn't called us to live in a situations where we're constantly undermined, constantly got at, constantly um, attacked in our... Um, home life in that sense I'm making that up as I go along it's always dangerous to do that because you can be misunderstood but I think that's what he says when we're, when we're calling us to peace and then this question about saving your husband or saving your wife is it a positive or a negative is he saying, is he saying you may save them so stick with it or you may not save them you know you don't know you're going to save them so don't feel that you have to stick to it at all costs because it may not be God's will for their salvation through you sticking with them and you're making your life such a misery 
and they've departed, you're not bound to stay. I mean, you may choose to do so, but you're not bound to do so. And that binding word is there in 727. Um, no idea why it's there in 727. And it's there in 739. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's a different context in that. But I, he's saying that the believer is not bound. So... They're difficult. All these texts are quite difficult, and they're fraught with, uh, you know, how things work out in individual people's lives. So I'll just try and do some conclusions. Number one: two believers getting married are to reckon if they're believers, we're to teach them, and they're to understand it is till death us do part, and therefore there's a commitment to working through their difficulties together. Full stop. A believer and an unbeliever are to reckon on staying together, but may not be as simple as that. Certainly the believer is not to try and push the other person out. If the unbeliever uh, will not stay agreeably in the marriage, the believer is not to attempt unduly to make the other stay. And this sort of this sort of fits the situation that Lorna was talking about. Let's say, I suppose a believer is married to a husband who is cruel, abusive, gets drunk, violent. Personally, I would say that person has left the marriage and is not willing to live agreeably with the believer. And in that sense, if the, 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 the believer, the, the marriage has already been left. And if, if the believer... Uh, um, is not uh, the believer is there is a limit to what you would expect the believer to do to try and keep the marriage together let's put it that way I also flag up the importance of church discipline because this designation of believer and unbeliever now becomes very important doesn't it Uh, and, and in church discipline the church has the right to say to somebody you say you're a member of our church but we believe you're abusing your children and beating up your wife and you've been warned about this and you're still doing it by the authority of Jesus Christ we are going to excommunicate you we're going to cast you out of the church and we're not going to treat you as a believer and that that changes the situation of how we regard this partner doesn't it so that's an important thing too. Again, these things happen rarely, but it is an important thing. Uh, third point, as it says here uh, about reconciliation, there's a great value in reconciliation. Uh, that, that the situation that was there in verse 13, remaining unmarried or being reconciled to the husband. I just point out the great value in that as Christians we've been reconciled we've been forgiven for our completely unacceptable behavior to God we've been forgiven for our obnoxious uh, responses to God we've been reconciled and so it's not a million miles from a Christian to say well if that's what God's done for me maybe I can seek reconciliation with this other person. And this is a sort of half-formed thought. Where we are now, or what we were in the past, doesn't necessarily bind us as to where we are now. Because you know what he was saying with these people, you were adulterers, you were male prostitutes, maybe you were married and divorced, you were a gamos, and I've got so you're in a different situation now and there's wisdom that Paul has to offer to those as we've seen full stop uh, just a couple of issues really not questions exactly um, a couple of comments I think um, one has, always has to read 1 Corinthians 7 in the sense which suggests in verse 26 because of the present crisis I think it it was written in a crisis situation um, 
possibly because, well, they'd had the mad Caligula as emperor. Then um, Claudius had taken over as emperor, who was reasonably sane, at least, but had nevertheless thrown all the um, Jews out of Rome, which must have caused separations in families and meant that there was a risk that if an unbeliever stayed with a believer that he would lose all his, he'd have all his property confiscated or something. And then, of course, around this time, we don't know if it's before or after, and the news had got there yet, but of course Claudius was assassinated by his wife to put Nero on the throne, who was going to be even worse. Um, so I do think there's, a, you know, one, when you're reading 1 Corinthians 7, in all sorts of ways, what it says about marriage and, you know, they may be happy if they remain unmarried and so on, you, you need to read that into a, what was a very unstable political situation and some of these things about that, that may be a, a part of the understanding of that, that you know, an unbeliever may have his property seized or something if he's contaminated with or with a, you know, with a, being with a, a Christian believer or something. Okay. That was one thing. The other thing, I, I, when Andrew Corns talked about his view, which he does, of course, at the training course, um, you know, he said people had said to him, is, is divorce an unforgivable sin then? Um, and I, I thought at the time, and I said this to him, I think that's the wrong question. The question is, is adultery an unforgivable sin? And I guess kind of that's what you were, you were hinting at. Because, yes, you were this. And, I mean, Jesus... We don't know exactly what advice Jesus, unfortunately, we don't know what, exactly what advice Jesus gave to the woman at the well. But she cer he certainly didn't say, oh, you must go back to your first husband Correct. or anything like that. Yeah. Presumably, he, he said you should regularize the situation with the man you're with now, was presumably what he was implying. Yeah. Um, and I think the, if one takes that very rigid line... The being, which very rigid well, the, line? Well, the Andrew Corns line, if you like. Yeah. Um, you're almost denying the, that, that grace, the whole point of grace is it puts right things that cannot be put right. So yes, in a sense that the marriage cannot be broken and should not be broken and yet grace is able to put things right that in a sense cannot possibly be put right. Hmm. And I think one needs to bear this idea of grace in mind when one talks about this and to say that perhaps you know you've got you, you do sometimes have to ask the question what is workable now you know what can be put right now you might say that ideally and I'm, I'm sure that's right that people should be reconciled if that's possible but if you know if people have moved on and you know this was all 20 years ago yeah. you know it, it doesn't and you, perhaps you have had a relationship with somebody else, it doesn't really make sense to say, you know, you should be reconciled with your yeah. first husband or wife. And I think, you know, there needs to be a certain amount of room, I think, for the application of grace and say, well, let's put something right that's, that's right now. Hmm. And, you know, in a sense, put aside what's gone wrong in the past, although you can't always completely do that, of course. Thank you for that, Steve. I think that's, there's a lot of good sense in that. And I do feel that the... Uh, I don't think I managed to get the texts to say this. I was not, not really supposed to get texts to say something that you want them to say. But uh, th I think there is a strong undercurrent in Corinthians that w people come from all sorts of messy backgrounds and it didn't disqualify them from living uh, a, a, a stable, uh, happy Christian life in the situation they were now in. And... Uh, just how you get there, I suppose, needs all sorts of wisdom. But I wouldn't want anybody listening to this to, to think that the, the ethics of the New Testament means that they've blown it so badly that they can never be a proper Christian anymore and they can never um, you know, show, lift their faces to the Lord anymore or, or anything like that because that must surely have, have got us into the wrong position. So thank you very much for that. Ben? Um, my thoughts are a bit muddled on this. Um, I'm still working through the issues. Um, I agree there is forgiveness of sin, mm. complete forgiveness, but there are also consequences of sin. Yep. And the fact that one has been forgiven for a particular sin doesn't mean that one can go on and continue 
as though nothing had happened. If I go and rob a bank this evening or tomorrow, then I'll be put in prison, and I have to live with that, although God may forgive me for that. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, there's a danger that we make marriage such a casual thing. Well, I, you know, I've sinned, but God will forgive me, so it doesn't really matter, so I'm free to do what I want. This idea that somehow, um, you know, it's, it's about my happiness, my gratification, that's more important. And I think there are consequences for sin, and I think that the person who has committed adultery, there is forgiveness. But there also, there needs to be this, you know, understanding that I've sinned in a very serious way. And the person be, should be very circumspect and very, you know, cautious about going into marriage again. Um, because it's such an important thing. Yeah, well, I, I agree with all of that. I, I think what I would disagree with is that if, if, if you were saying that the, the, the thrust of the teaching that we've looked at or the interpretation we've looked at was to make anybody think that marriage was a, an easy and light and trivial thing to enter into. Uh, we, have, we had a church member who had a very sordid, uh, perhaps sordid is slightly too to uh, uh, colourful a word, but a very colourful background, let's put it like that. And she, uh, she was married to an unbeliever. No, she, 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 she as an unbeliever married an unbeliever. She became converted. And so this raised all sorts of issues. I've completely forgotten why I started saying this, but I'll just finish the thought. It raised all sorts of issues for her and just in terms of the psychology of it, when I first met her, I wasn't quite convinced that she was suitably penitent about all the things in her background. Uh, but I, I quickly realized that she was absolutely flattened by all the things that had happened in the past. And she just put a brave face on it. But, uh, there were, and she very nobly uh, re-engaged with her husband from whom she'd been estranged and uh, even now is living happily with him he's a fully paid up Marxist she's a fully paid up Christian and they have a, a way of living together which honours both of those and he tries to convert her and she tries to convert him and uh, they're both used to that uh, but uh, yeah I, I think what I was trying to say was that there is a way of living as a Christian, knowing that you've made all sorts of mistakes in the past, and not trivialising it and say it's as, it didn't matter, but not being perpetually uh, under the cosh. The past is the past. I made a mistake. I was completely out of order. I put. I, I've told the Lord that umpteen times he knows that I'm forgiven by him this is the situation that I'm in I'm going to press on as much as grace will help me to do the best I can in the situation that I'm in and look to the Lord to, to bless me in that that's the sort of thing she would have said no, I agree just for the record I wasn't suggesting you were trivialising marriage <laughs> but people do and you see that I've known people who had very messy situations they've just gone, gone back completely to you know, somebody else. They don't seem to care at all. It's almost like, well, I've, I've been had this messy thing, but you know, God wants me to be happy. God will forgive me. And I, anyway, that's enough from me. But no, I, I respect your view, and I, yeah. I believe that as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know where it is in the Bible, but I know there is somewhere where it says, um, "Don't use grace as a, a means of continually sinning," or something like that. That's a Sorry. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Yes, I think yes. And so, so shall we sin that grace may yeah. You know, a Christian, yeah. uh, a true believer, hmm. wouldn't see, or shouldn't, I don't know, see a sin being forgiven by God, just another excuse to go out and do, do the same sin, again. knowing that God will... Because there's a point where God will act, um, you know, he, he lets you get on with it, doesn't he? There's a point where if you continue to sin... Uh, well, I mean, there's a yes and a no, isn't there? That, that many of us have besetting sins in the sense that it's something in our character that we keep on having to deal with. You know, let's say 
for example, somebody loses their temper, they, they, they might find that they have to keep on coming back to that. Yeah, so I'm, in, I'm in not, that I'm sense... I'm not saying that kind. I'm, I'm saying deliberately yeah, going yeah, out and knowing yeah. that God will forgive once I have yeah, asked for it, forgiveness. He's going to forgive me. Yeah, it, it shows that we haven't really understood grace. It, it's, not, it's the sort of action that's, that somebody would only do, which implies they not only have they not understood grace, but they haven't really understood being a Christian. Yep. Can I say something? Yes. If I understand it rightly, the real issue here is not really whether or not God is going to forgive somebody, because I think we all agree that's the case, but whether or not somebody who's been divorced can be, as far as I can understand, can be remarried. As far as I can understand, that's the real issue, isn't it? See it's what not. Steve says, because he, he was... Whether or not a divorced person can remarry. Not whether or not they'll be forgiven by the Lord, but whether or not they can remarry. Whether, whether as a, an item of discipleship, in good conscience, they could remarry, that's the question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is the issue. But I think there's also the issue that, you know, if you find yourself as not one of these people who can live happily in an unmarried state, which is precisely what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, you're always tempted to immorality. Would it not be better in that circumstance to remarry, even if that was not to the person you were originally married to? Yeah. I think that was the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, and I, I, see, I'm, I'm suggesting that that may well be what's in Paul's mind in verse 8. To the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry, because agamos is a word which can cover people who have been divorced. So there's a, the suggestion, it's not dogmatically proved, but the suggestion that's actually the, the thing that Paul is addressing in those verses. And say, so if we try and unwind this, because I'm, I'm trying to get my head around this as well, it's more complicated than I thought it was, but, but I, if we try and unwind this, what we're saying is somewhere we've now brought into the equation that a divorced person can't remarry. Now, where did we get that from? Because it's not in the Old Testament, because a divorced person could remarry. That's what divorced meant. And it's not in the culture, because in the culture that of the New Testament, being at the time of Jesus or subsequently, divorced meant you could remarry. The place where it comes from is a particular interpretation of those sayings of Jesus where he makes the exception. And... Is it warranted to read that out of those texts? Because once you've got it into your head, you start reading it into all the other texts. But is it right to have that in our head? Because I think Jesus said, you don't divorce, you don't, divorce, you don't remarry, because to remarry is adultery. Main thought, that's his thesis. With an exception, except in the case of adultery, in which case... Divorce is sad but possible and remarriage is a possibility. So it's, that's, yeah, sorry, I'm just sort of commenting on, on your question without answering it. If, 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 if I'm saying that divorce means that you can remarry. That's the meaning of, of, of divorced. And so if, you, if I wind back to my friend whose story I referred to, uh, I think he would say, I made terrible, you know, I've really hurt a lot of people and made a terrible mess. Uh, but the Lord has made it possible for me to remarry. And, it, you know, it's... It's not the original ideal. I don't know quite how you'd put that. It's not how it ought to have been, but at least I can, I can walk with the Lord in this new situation. Do you follow me? It hinges on genuine repentance, doesn't it? It does. Because... On, on the surface, it looks as if um, that guy has, you know, pushed away his wife 
and said, I don't want you. I'm going to go off with this other woman mm. and commit adultery. And, and then after a while, um, he says... Um, got that wrong. I got that wrong. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. And then he's left a whole trail of, of disaster behind him. And then he says he's repented. Yep. And uh, he's set up with some other woman, and they're going to remarry. And it, it sounds very unfair to the first woman. It is. is it? If not also to the second woman. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing hinges on true repentance, doesn't it? True repentance. He's, yeah. he's actually truly repented. Yeah. Because otherwise it just looks as if it's a farce. It's just a situation that... Yeah, um, ben exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a disincentive for people to stay married, isn't it? If you're saying, uh, you know, oh yeah, I can well. go off and do my own thing, uh, remarry down the line. But so if he has genuinely, truly repented, yeah. then he can have a new start. Yes. Well, as you say, it's a very, uh, it's a sort of process and distinction, uh, a process that, that the person themselves goes through with all sorts of, um, if you like, pastoral issues. So what's going on in that person's head? Where are they at? So on the one hand, you don't want to say, I don't think one would want to say, of anybody, you've blown it so much in the past that we'll never ever trust you as a Christian. We don't think you can be forgiven. We don't think you can possibly be sincere. And we've got no room in our church for people like you. Because I think to say that would be to say grace only covers a certain number of people, whereas grace potentially covers the vilest offender who truly believes. So I think we've got to allow grace to be grace. On the other hand, we uh, not saying we, we want to make it difficult for people, but I think we want to be discerning. We want to say, do you really mean it? I mean, you, we can't look into people's hearts, can we? But we can, we can watch over a period and say, does your behavior show that you really are sorry for what you've done in the past? Uh, are you expressing that? Are you willing to own up to that and things like that so it would be a very testing thing for any church to have a church member who went through that awful saga of things mm. Mm. Let's, uh, so mercifully we're going to have a different subject next week and uh, Steve's going to uh, lead us in